0: Today is Tuesday, December 14th, the year is 2021. This is No Easy Answers and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. Well, thank you so much for tuning in from wherever in the world you happen to be listening. My name is Jules Taylor. This is No Easy Answers, and I am delighted to have you with us for today's episode. Today on the show, I have Labor Kyle here to talk about historiography, and historiography is like the study of the methods that historians use in order to develop history as an academic discipline and You know, by extension, it's kind of any body of historical work that's done on a particular subject. And this show, in its description, I mean, we cover politics and philosophy, and so there is quite a bit of history that must be acknowledged during the conversations we publish. And so, I just thought it would be a good idea to examine how history is made. Because if you're listening to this podcast, chances are, you are a revisionist. Now, I don't normally start out podcasts by calling my listeners revisionists. I mean, uh, but I think in our society today, we are all revisionists. I mean, I think the people that listen to this show probably have a characterization of history that's closer to something like a Howard Zinn's a People's History of the United States versus what we can recall from our courses we took in high school or college and I guess what I mean is that there's like a meta-narrative to history that we can argue about, right? We don't necessarily have to have a consensus about what a narrative of history is in society. But, you know, depending on which lens we choose to see that narrative through, I mean... it, it historiography is basically just there to inform our lenses and inform us as we go about characterizing these narratives of history, right? I mean, this is all a pretty abstract conversation, and so I'm really happy to have Kyle here to talk to me about this stuff. Before we get started, I want to thank Kyle for sitting down and talking with me about historiography. And before we jump into the interview proper, I just want to tell you that Kyle has some really great video essays out on his YouTube channel. And Kyle hosts a podcast called All Gamers Are Bastards. Uh, we'll leave links in the show notes for y'all to check that out. And in some other exciting news... Kyle and the Lit Crit Guy will be hosting a new show on the Zero Books YouTube channel called Profane Illuminations. And I think listeners of this show will really appreciate the premise of that new show, uh, which is to examine the material underpinnings of our world through close discussion and examination of philosophy, history, and culture. So do keep an eye out for all of that. And just one more thing I do want to say, thank you, thank you to all of you who have been kind enough to leave us Uh, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You know, every now and then we get an influx of trolls that sometimes leave us a one-star review. And so I do appreciate all of y'all offsetting those one-star reviews by leaving five-star reviews and uh, some kind words about the show. So um, thank you for your support, as always. Thank you for uh, recommending the show to your friends and family members, and thank you for being a listener of No Easy Answers. Let's get to our interview with Labor Kyle about historiography.
1: So, uh, who am I? Uh, my name is <laughs> Kyle. Uh, a lot of people know me by my handles on various things, which is Labor Kyle, spelled the American way. Uh, I'm an academic historian and a uh, a writer and uh, someone who spends a lot of time making... Uh, video essays online, particularly as of late, but I've written in other places or like the uh, the Bias Magazine for the Institute of Christian Socialism or Protean Magazine or the Activist History Reviews of a few places that have uh, mistakenly published my work. Uh, and <laughs> but mostly I like to spend time talking about history uh, and particularly. Uh, the philosophy of historical writing, or what we call historiography, which is, philosophy has been very sort of dear to me for a very long time. I'm mostly, I'm trained as a historian academically, went to graduate school and everything, but mostly, my philosophical training in college came via either my theory coursework in history, or just out of personal interest. Um, I always like to read. And I found philosophy compelling. And I encountered a lot of it through theology because I grew up very religious. And so uh, thought and systems of thought, including theology, were always sort of an outlet, that in music, an outlet and release in sort of the evangelical church, which is not, not my thing and not great overall. But I used that as a way to sort of find myself into this sort of my little corner of nerdery which is history history it's always been when i was in high school they people started uh asking you what you wanted to do as a job and no one in my family really goes to college my sister ended up getting a degree and i got a cousin who's an engineer an electrical uh not an uh he's not an electronic engineer. He's some kind of, I'm sorry, Alan. He's, (laughs) uh, I think he's in some kind of, I think he works in the automotive. Uh, but, uh, no, he worked for GE anyway. Sorry. My personal history is not interesting. The, uh, but, uh, so I didn't really, when people asked me what I wanted to do, I liked history class. I said, so I could teach that. And then I went and did thought I was going to do eight hundred million different other things or whatever, and I basically now I'm in my thirties and I sit around and talk about history uh, mostly, and uh, is yeah it's just it's become very important to me. And as I, I, I always excelled on the more theoretical side of things, and I've always just kind of been an abstract thinker, and I gravitate toward sort of writing that way, and as a result was pushed by a very, someone who's very important to me, my undergraduate advisor at the University of South Florida, a brilliant classical historian named Jonathan Scott Perry, um, by his books, he uh, uh, pushed me toward historiography as sort of a specialization, and thus paying more attention to not just historiography, but uh, the philosophy of history, which is kind of a different thing, and we can talk about that when we get into it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. As, or intellectual history, um, these sort of like ways of approaching history as a body of work that is in sort of in line with the theme and the the themes and the subjects that you examine on your podcast, which is philosophy. So
0: yeah, yeah. Now I'm here, I guess. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for sitting down with us, man. Um, I, you know, originally I just wanted to talk to you about historiography, and I wanted to ask you, like, this whole thing started because I, I saw online, on Twitter, that you were like, hey, if you want me to come on your podcast and explain historiography, i would more than willing to do that, and uh, so I jumped at the chance, I sent you a message, it was really late um, when I sent you that message, but I was like, yeah, I would love for Kyle to come on this show and, uh, and explain historiography, but I, as just a premise to this entire situation, like, uh, can you tell us like what compelled you to even put that out there online like why was there some misunderstanding or did you see uh, something that concerned you or what's the story with that
1: there's a um, an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, by an American historian whose name isn't important enough to remember sure at uh, an Ivy League institution I believe linking Immanuel Kant to the proliferation of critical race theory in K through (laughs) 12
0: classrooms, (laughs) which is
1: honestly the dumbest fucking thing I had ever seen in my entire Mm -hmm, life. mm -hmm. It made me so mad because there is a, like, I think an earned reputation among, usually within the academy, no one gives a shit about this thing except for historians, but (laughs) there's a, uh, one of the more frustrating parts of my encounter with academic history is how, sort of, outside or beyond, or in this really kind of weird way, the historians' relationship with theory exists. It's this like a lot of historians see themselves either as like they, they work with such sort of short histories, as we call them, or micro histories that they feel as though that specificity is a pure substitution for an examination of the theoretical motions of history as a form of the a part of the humanities its relationship to other disciplines they not it's not to say that those people don't take that stuff seriously I think they do but I think they've stopped think they think they have earned an the right to stop thinking about it and i'm unfortunately here to remind them that no you haven't uh, because historiography or the philosophy of historical writing is at the very center of everything that we do Um, history as a concept that most people see as prefiguring our consciousness and experience and by that i mean this history as this exterior object that inters intersects with human experience but in this form of recognition more like between two subjects like they treat it as like a this, this exterior person or exterior object on which subjects can you know take and give meaning this sort of a thing but it's so much more complicated than that in that history is an active existing process in human consciousness that does exist outside of that consciousness but not but only as an extension of human thought. Because history is not this exterior thing. It's not the thing in the past or the stuff. It's, it's of it. It's of the past. But it exists only in active conversation with those of us who have stepped up to interpret it. Um, history doesn't exist unless we're interpreting. And so I think that sort of for me that always... I always sort of tried to take these types of things seriously, when I would encounter what I would see as a philosophical problem that can only be overcome via sort of like a a a principle that presents itself via a kind of a rational thought, kind of Hegelian that way. Uh, but it, it, in sure. the sense that, like, like there the I, I'm I'm constantly looking to try and sort of like transcend the limitations that are placed in front of me rather than sort of, you know, subsume myself under them. Because uh, I'd like a challenge and because I grew up Christian again, you think a lot about <laughs> transcendence and you don't realize it. You think a lot about the end of things. You think a lot about this. I'm not really like I would actually still call myself. A, I call myself a Protestant, but I don't really believe in God. I'm not interested in the like sure. is God real question yeah, yeah. or whatever. The way I always describe it is, I'm more interested in the stuff that exists up and outside and around God, which is the stuff that comes to you know, is you know, metaphysics, sure, and ontology, and yeah. time, and you know, stuff like that. You know that yeah, all that Heideggerian BS. But like, <laughs> there's <laughs> there's something so. uh I think, I think what I'm trying to say is that there is um, an intimacy in the sort of motions and drive of history that people that historians are very tuned into, as a as a way to sort of they want to tell stories. Historians are often interested in trying to tell authentic stories. Histori- they they're interested in the historicism. The presentation of some sort of actuality. Historians are very comfortable making truth claims. Sure. As support, like you know, there's this sort of like persistent Enlightenment philosophy within this. You know, there's there's interested in making a truth claim and supporting it with, you know, evidence and that sort of a thing. But there's also so much more to it than proving individual, it, in my opinion, this is where it starts to get really into my opinion, uh, there, there's so much more than just the sort of affirmation of sort of particular, particular historical questions that is present in history as a mode of study and is present in the philosophy of history. So like history itself as this concept that exists within human thought and then the historiography how we write present and argue for a particular way of seeing or interpreting history Mm. um it's so much more complicated than the stuff it really like academic history academia in general you know and it's it's a big tons of structural problems i'm not i try not to be too hard on the liberals and history departments who a lot just really wanted to, some who suck and who I hate, but most who just want to do a good job and who like their jobs and who like a lot of who could be better teachers, many who are very talented teachers and who care for students and their well-being. Um, But we're limited in this sense of, you know, affirming these absolute particularities of history which is that stuff is important but it's the result of a certain disciplining of the discipline <laughs> that people like me have always just whew, i just came I, I, you, you got to come in and mess that up a little bit every once in a while i think good historians and people like like historians people who exist sort of like either on the periphery or in conversation with history and philosophy are able to present those critiques in the best way and that's the kind of historian that i the kind of historian i want to be is someone who affirms history but seeks to present it in such a way that the affirmation is the result of transcending the or or pushing beyond the boundaries that people have placed for what history can be and that's like you know i, I want to do that you know you know you get it i mean that yeah thing, i mean that, that, that really
0: <laughs> resonates with me in by way of like i think uh at least in my own studies um like i'm always really jealous of uh folks who actually got to go and study shit in college you know i went to like a recording school for like nine months and all the stuff that i know is like outside of that is just a product of like reading you know and um yeah so um but i think my own studies intensified and i think i really uh felt like i had gained something entirely worthwhile from my troubles of independent study when i started to think of history less of this external third party separate and apart from sort of entity that you examine, that you take something from, and instead started to link up with like the human agency of being a part of history and being able to affect history and knowing like, kind of like that Faulkner quote, how the past isn't past, it's not even past or something about um, how history is here with us in these moments and, and there's so much about contemporary society that can be deciphered and explained by way of like uh, just studying the history of social institutions or uh, just, you know, understanding that like, you know, even something like if you're like reading like um, in defense of looting or, or the end of policing, you know, like these books kind of take a genealogical sort of method of describing how current uh, social institutions like police or the military or whatever grew historically out of uh, elements that are, still kind of right here with us anyway, you know? Um, So, so yeah, I totally get what you're saying um, on the one hand about how like history is not separate and apart and that we are actually agents that are capable of like changing history or, or that, or that things are simply contingent in these moments in a very kind of post-structuralist sort of way. Um, And at any moment we can kind of grab the wheel and, and uh, turn this thing in a different direction and, and I think that, you know, that kind of aligns up with the project of Marx in a way of like uh, we have a world to win, you know, lose your change and just like, kind of seize the means and and take history in the direction that we want it to go in rather than just being um, third-party uh, observers uh, to that sort of thing. Um, so, it's, it's, it's really wild, man, seeing this uh, article recently linking Kant up to CRT stuff, which was... I was like, how, like, tell me you haven't read philosophy without telling me you haven't read philosophy kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was absurd, and I was like, what the fuck? You know, like, and, and this is like, I'm just sitting over here, like, I I mean, I'm not even going to say, like, hey, have you read Kant? Because, like, the Critique of Pure Reason is a tome that's, like, impenetrable, and I'm, I, I study a lot of shit around Kant, second, like, like, second-party text and stuff like that. Like, um, Just as I'd like to know what his project is, I'd like to know more about it. But never in my wildest imagination would I just, like, link this up with CRT. I mean, it's like, I don't know how that conclusion was drawn. Um, you,
1: when you think it's lit, when you haven't read the book, and you think Kant is literally critiquing reason, which is not, it's not that's not what yeah. the critique of pure reason is about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And when I have a patch of gray hair on my head named after that historian officially <laughs> it took years off of my life reading that right and that was why i got mad online about it and cool. how we ended up here so here's you know good comes from
0: yeah man bad writing so um so i i i the research i did for this conversation um was kind of i mean you know i i remember i actually went back and listened to one of my favorite episodes of pearls of the round table uh, and they had a really great episode when they had um, Brett from Rev left on there, and they were talking about uh, the concept of silences. And I thought maybe this would be a good way to kind of enter into this conversation about historiography. Yeah. Um, but the concept of silences is that, like, you know, silences enter via the moment of fact creation, which is the creation of of, of sources, and then... There's silences it, during the moments of fact assembly, which is like the making of archives, and then uh, there's silences at the moment of fact retrieval, which is the the making of narratives, and then there's uh, silences within the moment of retrospective significance, meaning like that that's like the making of history in its final instance. Um, so I I thought that maybe like I mean I didn't actually look up the definition for historiography, but I figured like if we're talking about the philosophy of how one records history, uh, you know, I started to get a little, feeling a little like I was lost in some postmodern soup here, because uh, you know, if we, um, if I'm going to ask you questions about historiography, then we're going to focus on the way that history is recorded, um, which means that we're not actually going to study the events of history directly, but Rather, the sort of changing interpretations of those events in the works of individual historians. Um, so, this postmodern soup I felt like was, you know, kind of doubting of meta narratives, the breaking apart of a consensus, uh, a consensus of like historical narratives. Um, so, I, I had, you know, I mean, I, I didn't know how to like enter this conversation other than just asking a really overly broad question, which is just like, how are we to interpret history?
1: I think it's a fa- I think it's actually a fair question because it it gets to the core of what historiography is. There's uh it's history itself as a discipline is defined often by what we call turns uh in subject matter and methodology and in sort of the social f- the social form and function of the history seminar. Historians and a the sort of the stuff outside of the academy, the social and public functions of history, uh, public history and historical memory being two things that I think uh, jump out at me in particular. Now, I have plenty of problems with the turn sort of theory uh how we describe sort of history as a discipline this sort of linear sense but it is very useful for understanding historiography as a concept um and what it means to sort of approach the philosophy of historical writing on its own in and rather than as you said um sort of in motion if you will like asking historiographic questions because you absolutely can ask historiographic questions and pose answers in the midst of sort of doing what we think the historian does and the historian does do, which is, you know, interpreting sources often about a particular time, place, people, etc. These very sort of like collections of human beings at some point in the past, and how do they interact with their built and natural world, any level of specificity, all the way up to sort of the big sort of broad questions of history. Um, I don't know exactly how we interpret history, but I have ideas about it uh, that I'll get to after I explain this but the historiography has been around western historiography goes back to this is ancient Greece and Rome this is Herodotus and Thucydides this is Sallust and Polybius, and this is all these like really old big books that we don't have that are exist only in fragmentation But the writing of history and schools of history that we can call Hellenic historiography, Greek historiography, or Roman historiography, um, are a part of classical studies um, and definitely exist in conversation with the contemporary way that people write history or more contemporary ways, but they're also very different. Um, There's a meme on Twitter... I saw that really summed it up. That I thought was really funny. It was the Virgin and Chad. It was that wasn't the Virgin and Chad me. It was like a crying Wojak, who was like upset about the way that the 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 Chad was interpreting history, and the Chad was like my cousin told me about it in a dream and just so i totally know what happened here's what happened it's kind of like it's much more abstract in that way it's like oh i was there so i know exactly what happened let me describe it for you and so it has it's a way of writing that is um most interesting as an historical source itself but also there is a legacy that extends all the way up to the end of the to the beginning of the 1800s, where the Modern History Seminar was formed, uh, the figure most closely associated with, it's usually various German national national historians, um, but Leopold von Ranke is the figure that comes to mind and that you read in, in your undergrad and grad school theory classes. Um, basically, it was a, a, f- a form of empiricism, or in the sort of Ooh. legacy of empiricism. And they constructed the uh, the colloquium and the loqui being speaking together. So, sort of discussion around the particular subject. And in, in more modern grad school colloquium would be like a survey of a li- body of literature on a particular subject, like Jacksonian America or the Roman Republic, or these are classes I took in grad school. I, sure. Uh, and uh, but that's really like where modern historiography comes from is really that part in the early modern period. But but the for after that is when we start to encounter um, the the sort of st- the, the stuff most familiar for people who examine historiography, which is in part Marxism. Marxism, as an extension of Hegelian thought with regard to history, exists on this boundary between the philosophy of historical writing and the philosophy of history, which is an important distinction that I can, you know, get into. But that really, we, the way that we interpret and write history, took the has taken a series of. Alterations, changes, um, and as they say, turns, which again, I don't, not quite, but over the over the years. So you have structural turns, you have the cultural turn of the 1970s and 80s that was influenced very much by a linguistic turn, um, and this is all changes mostly in methodology, in the way that the emphasis that people would place on particular historical experiences. It also is, a, there is an alteration in the, what types of conclusions people are looking for um, in their scale. So there's uh, the French Annals School that placed an emphasis on what they call the long durée, which is the, the, it's a grand history in terms of its scale and it places a big emphasis on structural elements and it was sort of like created and its roots are in the same and similar to what of Marxist historiography or historical materialism would have emerged from, uh which is these this idea around sort of not not just a uh an emphasis on the way of writing history that takes into account for Marxism uh, the um, functions of the mode of production as a determining factor in the sort of events and belligerence in those events. Or uh, basically that there's, there are sort of, There are ways that individual people or rational actors are connected to and you could say subjected to the motions, the larger motions of you know, nation state alongside of environment and economy and that sort of a thing. So uh, there was for a long time there seemed to be something of a goal from the German national historians through uh, historical materialists and Marxists, even into the the, the different flavor of Marxists with E.P. Thompson and Antonio Gramsci and the, mm-hmm. the Gramsci in turn in the English-speaking world the 1960s, um, but then all the way into what I would say the more increasingly hermeneutic or textually based uh, forms of reading and interpreting history, as well as some sort of postmodern turns and post-colonial turns in the discipline that see seek to emphasise non-reducibility in history or narrative over causation or the inversion of that, the more Foucaultian idea that it sees causation and narrative that are merged together. So to get all the way, 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 way back to the beginning of what your question is: how are we to interpret history? My argument my uh, I contend personally as someone who, in his own methodology, seeks to subvert the distinction between very big histories, like a, like from the Marxists or from the French and school that seek to talk about sort of grand schemes of long historical periods, all the way down to the what we call micro historians, like the The almighty Natalie Zeman Davis uh, to try and seek to use individual stories or the most micro historical perspectives to elucidate larger, what would, to elucidate experience, actual lived experience of people, um, either as a means for examining causation alongside of narrative or as a means for emphasizing the way that individual rational actors narrativize their lived experiences world and how that has a direct effect on the way that history works, Um, I would wager that we need to not flatten out history as a discipline uh, lest we risk continuing to specialize ourselves into obscurity despite the shared knowledge we have of the functions of our discipline. So my argument that I contend um, in several places online, and that I, uh, I like to talk about the work of um, uh, the German philosopher and Marxist Walter Benjamin, Mm. who contends as history um, as this as a, 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 a who contends to observe history in a more prismatic sense, as I like to say, as in history less as a linear process from, through which ter- various turns have taken us to where we are currently, which is a lot of tr- trans Atlantic history, as I think world history. World systems theory works well with the way that people, you know, stuff that's valid um, and that has, you know, sort of big, but also various micro histories and very short histories, specialized histories that rather than flatten all of this out as this sort of linear journey, which is wrought with problems in the way that we describe our own discipline, we need to bundle it up instead. So it acts as a multi-sided prism through which you cast light and can see the way that you can, we can see a, have a, a grander perspective in the way that history is formed and written about if we're willing to acknowledge that or to pursue a way of seeing the world that can that can possibly link the individual experiences of rational actors to grander larger potentials hmm. uh, and that history is not something that purely exists in past but um, comes crashing into the present via a and the willingness and expression of agency that human beings come up with every once in a while on our better days when we decide what we want the future to look like the pr- future and past in a a conversation with each other and it manifests itself in our present via our individual agency and so that all that's my take <laughs> and no, lord knows a shit ton of people would disagree with that but i've am compelled by i i, I like to i bring into conversation this little little booklet that's actually free online called the history manifesto that was written by joe goldie and david armitage Mm. two very nice liberals who are wrong about some things in my opinion they're not (laughs) militant enough but who are posing an important question uh for people like especially historians are we not how, are we not sick of resigning ourselves to trying to make our historical questions fit on the head of a pin? Mm. And are we going to bring the long durée back basically and try and assert ourselves, um, via sort of the, the what they see as historically contingent circumstances that we are in, like the climate change being mm-hmm. an example, they talk about inequality and they paraphrase Marx in the first sentence and then, yeah, my take, I'm probably going to write about it at some point. That's cool, man. That it's just,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, a few things come up for me when, in just listening to your to your response to that really broad question, however fair it was, it's a huge question. So, thanks for for fielding that, you know. Um, it's this question of progress. Like, uh, you know, I, I think uh, liberalism and, and, and modernity would have us believe that we are always progressing towards a more perfect future, a more perfect society, uh, mm. kind of like in a Fukuyama sense, and like, okay, this is like the end of ideology, we're now in a process of perfecting this, you know? And um, so, there, there's there's a lot about, I guess maybe in the way that history is, is taught, I would think, that leads us to believe that this narrative of history is just, you know, it, it's just progressing until a better and better state, until a sort of, I don't know what the end point would be, like some sort of utopian thing, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I I, have I recently, in studying and reading some of, like, Foucault, uh, it's come to my attention that, like, you know, human progress is not linear. It's not, I mean, history is not linear. Um and and there's no guarantee that like the tomorrow that's built today is not going to be worse than it was yesterday, you know. Like there's no guarantee that uh, the improvements we make today are going to result in a better world tomorrow. Um, and uh, and so I so I wonder about like this narrative of progress. Um, I felt like in some of the research for this show, I felt like we could blame the the prevalence of this theory of progress on like uh on david hume and i wonder if that's like accurate or i I wonder if you could maybe pinpoint or or point to where exactly this notion of like infallible progress uh emerged from so i think that's a very i think it's very political
1: um in that it in particularly in its Contemporary manifestations, you mentioned Fukuyama, particularly 1990s Fukuyama, Mm -hmm. I think is indebted to a sense of liberal politics that is, you know, doing a lot of the driving in this sort of expression of the sort of... The, the, the epitomizing human progress in this sort of like expressions of rational individuals, most of whom would yet with all of this yet with he can just use economic inequality in any particular context to illustrate that, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's a, it just kind of pops that balloon a little bit. Mm mm-hmm. um, the popular understanding of that, I think, is in part, just in general, an, an illiteracy when it comes to the sort of hit larger historical questions. I don't, you know, not to sound pretentious or anything, I don't think that's anybody's fault, I don't think we talk about history in the right way. Uh, Hume, but for Hume, now I haven't read the histories of England. Sure. And it's been a long time since I've read David Hume, but... Um, he was doing this sort of like I mentioned Leopold von Ranke earlier he was doing this sort of like Ranke Rankean thing before the seminar was invented in that he was concerned with the stuff of history the philosophy of history as a as a concept um as well as the more analytic sense of uh, as a, as a, as a closer to the History as a form and mode of analysis. Um, So he's because he's doing kind of like a constitutional history or a national history to give shape to longer events and the furtherance of like the Enlightenment spirit, I guess. Because he was he was an empiricist and a philosophical skeptic. So he's would be skeptical. So Hume would, in a way, be skeptical of a kind of historical teleology because rather than seeing that the possibility for the, that rational like the Hegelian thing with history which is that eventually the unfolding of reason will emerge via a, for Hegel, a recognition in like universal human rights in a recognition between human subjects like the philosophy of right would describe it but i think i think there i think the liberal enlightenment is actually i mean there's part there's there's stuff from the illiberal enlightenment that i think is like really useful in terms of its sort of like metaphysical potential and its role in history i think is invaluable liberty equality fraternity like people keep bringing that up and using it again for a reason i talk about haiti a lot and as speaking the ideas of sort of being able to exert agency by reappropriating the uh, philosophy from the French Enlightenment via cultural signifiers, as well as just like ethics and all of this really interesting stuff of both history and philosophy. Um, I think we all know the contradictions of the liberal Enlightenment sort of lay bare. um, And that's where sort of the conversation about historical contingency uh, really comes into play more into the twentieth century. Um, so we have this idea that you know the unfolding of uh, of a, a total history via the sort of the teleology of rationality that uh, eventually we'll just sort of figure that out via this these the 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 sort of conversation between these various forces. Or conversely, um, this sort of like the true stuff of history is going to emerge from my experience, um, and thus being able to illustrate experience in its most histor- in a, in an historical sense of it. I guess. Um, I think. I think. I think one necessitates. The former, that is, necessitates this kind of sort of like, I don't know. I describe it often as like a faith act. This idea that like we're a- I'm acting on a pursuit to a higher truth despite my own doubts. Mm. Affirm. That's why. it's why I talk a lot about affirmations of absences. It's really important for I think I think it's important evidence for that idea. That's why I talk about solidarity as a formative concept in people and why I think labor history is important is not just from my own experiences but because you have this ability to uh, a form of recognition that takes into account my own absences and subjectivity that I think we have to deal with considering that we just like don't truly always know ourselves but I know I lack the change within myself to make things better and I need to rely on other people and it I, and, and having seen it fer- in person in labor it changes people's lives as well so I'm forced to grapple with this, like, do... Am am I trying to just illustrate historical experience in the best way that I can? Am I trying to, like, illustrate absolute contingency um, uh, for uh, an illustration of the way that individual people make change despite those contingencies? Am I trying to do something bigger than that? It's... It's easier for historians to say, I'm going to go study mercantile culture in the 17th century in this particular place. There's a good set archive for it. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to write two books, get tenure and go teach American history. Like I get it. I don't know how the answer to all of these questions. Um, But what I think is that ultimately our main problem is that we don't ask them enough.
0: Mm. I think, I don't know. Well, you know, I, it wasn't until I got into, like, uh, radical politics that I discovered labor history. Like, this shit is not taught in any sort of uh, school that I ever attended. And and you bring up a good point in, in mentioning that, because I think, uh, you know, labor history, maybe the big takeaway when you start engaging with that, is that it that is that it is an expression of human agency. And so it's... At like a fundamental contradiction with the bourgeois history, great men of history thing. It's like um, it kind of flips that it on its head. That 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 you know, it says no. It's not just like one great person that affected history here. It's that many people of the working class came together to express the need for better working conditions or intolerable conditions, and through solidarity they came together and changed. That part of history, and and you know of course like you know you have the liberal like multicolored meme that says like liberals brought you the weekend and liberals brought you the forty hour work week and that sort of stuff. When of course it was it was all just fucking unions, you know. Um, so it, it's interesting that you that you mentioned the labor history thing, and I'd love to have another uh, conversation with you at some point specifically um, just over labor history um, because I find that. You know, it's crazy when you're like, hey man, Battle of Blair Mountain, they're like, Battle of what? And I'm like, yeah, they fucking use planes to bomb people. And they're like, that no, they didn't. It sounds like it's like a B-list Hollywood movie that would never happen. And and it's right there in history, you know? And so this goes back to like the concepts of, you know, and speaking about historiography with you, this goes back to the concept of silences, of like what is omitted from the historical record or what is intentionally not mentioned at times. Or, or what is left out of historical education that um, that would otherwise contradict the sort of bourgeois narrative of the way history progresses, and um, so I, and part of the reason why I brought up David Hume and that shit is because, like, you know, uh, basically like. David Hume, at some point in his life, concluded um, that England had achieved, quote, uh, the most entire system of liberty that was ever known amongst mankind. And, of course, he was writing during the 18th century in which England was the primary driver of the the Atlantic slave trade. So, um, you know, in hindsight, I mean, that, that leads me to question about, like, in terms of historiography, like, how much of history and the record of history is affected by the personal attitudes of historians or societies uh, at the time of the recording of the of historical record.
1: Yeah, all of it. I mean, all of it. And it's, it's, we've grown in our ability to, very. It's there's a very simple answer, we have grown in our ability to contend with this central problem of history. Hmm. And it is a necessary, it is necessary to do a lot of things, um, uh we have to grapple with the agencies of historical subjects as we were talking about. We have to deal with the sort of plasticity of historical objects and subjects themselves too. And the we have to deal with the way that things are presented um, in various at various points and in various forms. There's no way around it. Um, and just by by virtue of like absence of, con- it, but the absence of contending these points still sort of is always within it. There will always be this stuff. Um, and we have to, we've just gotten better in some ways, and maybe not in other ways, but, uh, but in, in general, there, there has, people have been doing their best to try and, work within the sort of like necessary confinement of discipline in general how everyone has to deal with this or interdisciplinary history history is incredibly interdisciplinary. It can be It's not. sometimes it's not as much as it could be, but like, uh, and even, and so we have to contend with those points. Uh, that's conversation. It's an, it's an existing conversation is the sort of like, you know, we talk about the literature as a discipline with its various gaps and like you to fill gaps in the literature to, you know, make your research relevant. You have to place it in conversation with other people's research or whatever. And um, the sort of questions of our methodology come into conflict with the questions of the historian as a writer it comes into question as of uh the agency of subjects and this the presentation and sort of the thing the thing stuff of objects their meanings um and it's 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 daunting it's daunting but it's the um sort of my contention is as i've said you know basically throughout the conversation my contention is that we should deal with it as much as we can uh, and that sometimes we don't talk about it enough. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, um, and maybe it's just a symptom of our postmodern condition, but I, you know, a couple days ago, I just learned about this, which is really wild, actually. But, uh, you know, there was this TikTok video floating around of this girl who was saying, hey, you know, all that stuff that happened in ancient Rome, it never actually happened. And all the records we have of ancient Rome, the, the the writings are in ancient Greek, and this thing called like new chronology, like I, yeah. I just I I had I was not initiated to that at all, and um and I just thought, well shit, dude, like we're we're breaking apart meta narratives to the point where we're just inventing alternative versions of history, contradicting scholars and 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 historical records and and artifacts, and uh so. I think there's so much disagreement uh, as far as uh, having a consensus of history. And the person that comes to mind here um, is someone like a, like fucking Dinesh D'Souza, um, who like promulgates these wrong ideas about history that, that conflates like, it's one thing if you, if you, take the position of horseshoe theory, but it's another to sort of promulgate that in such a bad faith, misinformed way as to uh, sort of motivate bad actors in society uh, to believe wrong things in service of uh, an abhorrent ideology, you know? Um, But maybe you could speak a little more about like, as a historian, what you're witnessing in today's society with uh, the disagreements on historical narrative, uh, the inventing of false narratives and the promulgation of like uh, wrongful historical ideas in service of ideologies.
1: Yeah the the new chronology stuff is it's <laughs> I, it, it's a lo, it's a lot. Um, it's, it it has a it has a you know it does none of it really also honestly none of it really surprises me all that much and here's why it's not the most unique impulse to construct sort of like aggressive fictions and to use them as a like sort of a cudgel in a particular way or whatever um it's mostly an inversion of the usual type of a thing that uh, you desc- You went on to describe actually with with a very good example. Daniela just is a good example of the sort of the the sort of discourse that's persistent, and I think that manifests in weird TikTok, you know, teenagers saying that the Rome the Rome didn't exist, sure, um, but that the Spanish Inquisition wrote Rome that monks wrote Rome into existence or whatever, right. Uh, like there's a lack of literacy on historical sources there's all the usual sort of stuff but when you think about like reactionary history it's it's i i i get we we have we have to contend with this stuff in particular because a lot of people are like well the the adage that his uh, god what is the thing that people always say to me history, history is you're doomed to repeat it if it's left unexamined, right? Um, which like no, because uh, <laughs> part of the part of the problem is when people examine history in the wrong way. Like history doesn't go unexamined. It's always examined. Like it always like it, it's about, you know, it's it's a lot more than that. Um, we have to contend on interpretation and the the function of history and the use of its sources. And purely because if you don't, now, now well, and now in 2021, we have, you know, weird people, well, and, and before that too, they've, people have done this for centuries, but now we have TikTok teens saying that, you know, Rome doesn't exist um, alongside, but, but then we also have um, people attempting to sort of do... Weird, uh, uh, reconstructive, like trans-European identity politics. Right. That's white. Na- it's just white nationalism. It's white nationalism. Um, fascism is an interpret is a particular interpretation of history, one that's very reactionary, that seeks to sort of like resurrect a grand historical scheme that they've seen it being buried by multiculturalism and degeneracy and that sort of a thing uh you know i i i i i just i i would contend that generally part of our problem is that we are um we we it's it's important to understand that history is a process of you know becoming um and that like I talked about it. I recently put out a video that talks about a lot of this kind of stuff, how uh, personal histories are linked intimately to the sort of grander schemes of history. And that's because our stories are inspiring and motivating. And if enough of us get together, we can really fuck some shit up. So yeah. Labor history is very important. And I, I, I've always been connected to it, um, even as it's fallen way out of vogue. I think it has some, I think class as a formation, um, in a, in prefigurative pre. I think there's a prefigurative class experience that we neglect as a categorization for historical actors and historical experiences. Um, and I've been getting into it more, but the I, I talk about it because there's like. In, in Chuck Keeney's book, The Road of the Blair Mountain, which I use in this video heavily, I think that book's really remarkable, not just because it's really well-written and readable, so I can recommend it to all kinds of people, and they can get a little slice of, what, labor history and civil advocacy and all this stuff that I think need... I think a new labor history would be intimately connected to public history and civil advocacy. It's the argument they kind of make in the book, uh, in the video. Uh, but also because it illustrates that memory has social function and that when a group of people get together and decide we need to memorialize this battlefield because the Battle of Blair Mountain is part of one of the most important pieces of labor history in this country and in this part of the world. and you have to imagine all of the various sort of like changes and awakenings that happen when these individual people are working within their community community to do bottom-up civil advocacy and to do it in the name of preserving history that we that aren't saying what they kept saying our ancestors have a story that people should hear this is so they're expressing their agency by saying our history matters and we need to advocate to be the ones who tell it preserve this battlefield they took on big coal in the process it's like you were talking about earlier uh and like uh, it's something i think about quite a bit i was talking about with a buddy of this earlier today actually the, the how mining often is like the same people fighting each other over generations and generations it's the same it's the same companies right or it's a legacy company that's like it might as well be the same it's the same thing with a different name and and then it's a it's a grandsons and great-grandsons and all this stuff who keep taking up the same fight by virtue of who by virtue of their prefigurative experiences Mm. as workers you know taking into account the contingency of their particular circumstances and those functions of historical contingency that are important for things like the post-structural turn and that, that kind of a thing. While still understanding that history is just something that we make. And that if enough people get together and get nasty with it, like you can actually... Not only can you change things, but in the case of this story, that's why it's so important, you can change history. There, there Chuck talked about how people, people even in that area weren't talking about the Battle of Blair Mountain. And then all of a sudden, now it's they went in, they dug the history up, and they brought it back in via assertion in the commons, a public space. And so they're like, okay, we're changing history by representing it and telling it in the way that we think that it should be told at all in this case. So it, it's incredibly powerful, the idea that like history can be used to make change in the world, um, and that it can be done now. And that we can all be thinking of it this way. But it's just intimidating in terms of there's barriers to entry. There are the sort of doubts that plague a discipline that is, you know, getting cut out of the academy. And as a result, um, we lack sophistication in the way that we discuss these things. Hmm. And so, I think it it takes... I think we just need to... Honestly, we should get more political. People should get more political. They should see right. themselves as they should just be more political. Historians should be more political. I love some of my favorite, like people who have gotten into the labor movement. have gotten in through academia because there's, you know, big movements of graduate students in in adjunct and contingent faculty. Some wall-to-wall unions that are organizing on college campuses. Um, And it's reasserting itself. That was something that happened that was big in the 70s and the 80s with faculty. And then in the 90s, um, maybe not the 70s, maybe just the 80s. And then the 90s with graduate students and stuff. The first sort of unions uh, that formed on university campuses formed in that time. And it was via this, this sort of like students of the 60s coming up and becoming. They all went to grad school and they got involved in the campus movement and so they went on campus as as faculty and as teachers and that's where the teacher the, that's this where the, the biggest unions in the United States teachers union mm-hmm. sort of really became the force that it is and i would argue that it's not a precise one for one thing but i would say we're in similar condition to where class consciousness is on the rise support for labor is on the rise academic precarity is on the rise mm-hmm. All these nice
0: little things going up at the same time. And so I don't know. I don't know yeah. where I was going with that. Well, I, you know, a question comes up for me here, and I didn't know if I was going to really talk about this or ask it or uh, ask this question. But, um, uh, you know, since you're a historian, we're talking about class and kind of prefigurative roles within that. It seems like there's a space to ask this question. But I, you know, I've been reading a book by Todd May lately, um, and longtime listeners will know that I. I had Todd May on the show, episode sixteen or so. After I read like half a dozen of his books, huh. I, I I love the guy's cool. work, um, but he has a a book that he wrote on Michel Foucault, and um, you know, like I, I consider myself a communist, so coming to like Todd May explaining a lot of anarchist uh, stuff, mm-hmm. there's a little like there's some there's some tension there, um, yeah. but I um, but I I think I came to a conclusion recently that. As a Marxist, it is easy for me to dispense with certain philosophers. Like I'm reading a lot of Nietzsche and a lot of newer interpretations of Nietzsche that uh, that kind of see him in a in a proto-fascist sort of light. And um, so, as a Marxist, I'm like, okay, fuck Nietzsche. I can put him aside. That's fine. Um, as a philosopher, I mean, I'm not that I consider myself a philosopher, but someone who engages with philosophy. It's much more difficult to like put down Nietzsche, considering everyone post Nietzsche is answering to Nietzsche in some way or another. Um, yeah. And so uh, this question has to do more with like Foucault, because you know I, I most of the Marxist or scholarly professors that that teach philosophy or. Um, are heavily committed to Marxism, I tend to ask them, like, are the projects of Foucault and Marx ultimately reconcilable? And I get some people who are like, oh, yeah, they're totally reconcilable. You know, like Todd May says, go read Ranciere. Uh, Gabriel Rockhill was like, no, man, they're not compatible at all. Um, and he had a sort of scorched earth uh, sort of uh, opinion on all that. Um, but I say all that to ask you this question uh, in that one thing I gathered that, that Todd May says about Foucault Uh, in his book about uh, the philosophy of Foucault, is that he says, Foucault takes history more seriously than Marx. And that was like, that kind of resonated with me. Maybe resonate is not the right word, but it's been poking around at the back of my head lately. Um, Because I do think that there is something a little, um, if Marx is going to sort of subsume all of history into class warfare, um, I understand that. And there's a reason why... um, why sort of uh, antagonists or or people that you engage with sort of debate with would, um, if you are heavily committed to Marxists, it would follow that you are on some level a class reductionist. Um, So I I, I get that formative argument, Um, but I wonder if you have any uh, thoughts on the concept of that Foucault takes history uh, more seriously than Marx. And maybe if you would like, you can speak a little bit on like, as a Marxist and a historian, how it's like, or easier to toss away as a Marxist some philosophy as opposed to actually engaging with philosophy, how it's like you just can't throw someone away like Nietzsche or Foucault.
1: I, uh, Don't worry about him, Kate. It's okay. My dog's blind, yeah, so yeah. he talks. Oh, right. he I just got you. Right. Right. Oh. Fine enough. Come here. Fine enough. <laughs> He's so funny. Woof. Woof. Um, so I think it's a really interesting question because I don't know about the reconcilability of Marx and Foucault's projects. Um, Foucault's project was... They're, they're different in scope and scale. They're in different time periods. A lot of the benefit that Foucault has is that Foucault read Marx and Marx didn't read Foucault. Right. right. They're separated by a lot, a long period of time, but it's an important conversation. I think bringing Marx back into conversation, um, in certain academic contexts is really important. And Foucault would be the guy to start with because he's the most cited, like he's the most cited of the 20th century in the humanities. That's, that's, that's your guy. Right. And so, I think Marx takes history incredibly seriously, but it's it's just a matter of whether you agree with the particular vision and function of mm-hmm. history. His particular, as we were talking about the sort of differences and similarities between historiography and the philosophy of history, right. Marx's particular philosophy of history and how that turned into its sort of the historiographic methodology of history uh, um, historical materialism, not that not that Marx, you know, wasn't inventing historical things. You know, right, right, right. That's that's Marx, but you know, you know what I mean. Sure. It, uh, I also think, for the record, of course, that Foucault takes history very, very seriously. Foucault is widely read in history. I read him in undergrad and graduate school. In graduate school, we spent two weeks of our theory class on Foucault taught by a Foucaultian Mm now someone who I like very much and very much respect my old graduate director, uh, who uses him a lot. But I think what's important, I think if we're going to talk about first the sort of similarities between the two, um, for the record, I mean, I'll probably have to go right at five. That's okay. Um, Sure. Just so, yeah, yeah. yeah, just to, just so we're looking ahead. We got sure. But, uh, um, If we're, I think, first talking about the similarities between their two projects, is, is is not that hard. They're both interested in like, in when it comes to history, more totalizing theories. Um, Now, whether that totalization is an affirmation of one particular vision of history, and then that other one is total in its sort of critique in that same affirmation, and instead is about contingency as an illustration of genealogy and epistemology rather than as a, dec- a sort of a more idealistic theory of totality. It just depends on who you agree with. So for the for instance, Marx himself, historical materialism is rooted in a sense that material forces uh, and the significance in the relations of our of production that that these have a totalizing effect on the world and that they those material forces will thus mystify various competing various parties that should be very you know well aware of their the difference in their um interests um via ideology and so it invokes states of consciousness in class groups who should, according to Marx, really understand that they disagree. And in this sort of Marxist Hegelian and was seeing history as a furthering toward the sort of Hegelian sense um, of the that the constraints of. The contingencies in the material world would transform and yield to increasing freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, history is a process, as I was saying earlier, history is a process by which spirit discovers its own self and its own concept of self. Um, so, this is like retro. I'm, you can be a Marxist and say this, I'm going to get to it. That's retro. And that's okay. I'm kind of one of... I'm, People talk a lot about this sort of like neo-Hegelian turn certain elements of Marxism is in, especially people who are interested in stuff that I'm really interested in, like psychoanalysis and that sort Mm -hmm. of a thing. I'm down as hell for all of this. This is kind of my whole vibe, to be honest. But if you take it purely within its context and without taking into consideration the, again, problematic turns in historiography, um, it is real retro um and not as useful as one would think uh instead um we have the marxisms of the rest of the 20th century in relation to history the two names that come up that also read in in uh training to be a historian it would be uh antonio gramsci in particular um revolutionizing the way that people study culture um and then you also have uh the british historian e.p thompson who was also placed a big emphasis on history from below and the agency of working people um especially in culture and the development and expression of their own individual culture and the way that they changed culture so some people uh, I think a lot of people have an understanding of like historical materialism in this like retro kind of a way, which is this, you know, sort of doesn't take as much into account the thinking that happened because of after and after Marx. Um, it just kind of just reads Marx, which is this sort of, you know, the particularities rendered as super the particularities rendered as superstructure from the economic base are right. the sort of. Function, the expressions and functions of culture um, rather than the necessary critique of the that those expressions and functions of culture that come with someone like Antonio Gramsci who's interested in critiquing these historical contingencies by more thoroughly examining the way that ideology functions for because with the Gramsci for example, the, the idea that like, the the heretofore unfolding powerful forces that are going to come, you know, collapse capitalism made fascism instead in his country. And so he was confused and needed to take into account ideologies, functions within the context of other new fund economic projects of the 20th century. Uh, but that resulted in the turn and in some incredible turn in some scholarship. And it also brings to mind, I think, interesting thinkers who could be brought into conversation with history more readily, like Guy the Board as a Marxist, and the critical theorists who really started to who, who, were, who came up in uh, um, the rise of consumer culture. Um, and another another important essay read by historians. Being the work of Adorno and Horkheimer. Um, they wrote uh, in the Dialectic of Enlightenment. What the hell is that? Is Anyways, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. Exactly. Uh, critical theory has a lot to say about history, more than one would think, as well. Um, and then, so we, we place that into conversation with Foucault. Foucault, in and of itself, I think there would be people, I would probably be among them, people who would argue for more general continuity in Foucault's thought and throughout... His, like, there's this, like, bifurcation between the structuralist Foucault, which he didn't like, right, and then the post-structuralist Foucault, which, I mean, he also didn't really care for. Right, right, right. <laughs> the dude was like, you don't know, how, do, not per- do not perceive me.
0: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Against like, visibility, you know. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Quotations. You can <laughs> quote Foucault on that. Yeah. Like, uh, But I think that's useful for examining the types of work that Foucault did rather than maybe rather than talking about like big changes in how he examined power which is really the sort of the, the central subject of his work as well as the, uh epistemology because he was really invested in the illustration of epistemologies as they were like rendered in structure right which is where madness and civilization sure comes from you know madness and civilization as a long array of sorts mm-hmm. uh, a changing interpretation and in this case a changing genealogy of epistemology that can tell us more about relative particularities in history rather than a consistent scheme Of those particularities rendered as a superstructure over them. So it was historicism rendering things as they are in history, but as a critique of that portrayal itself. Right. How instead of, you know, rendering objects perfectly as they are, the idea is that they are placed in time. When objects are placed in time, they are rendered within discourse. And that these discourses take the primacy of the that way of that place and times way of thinking, um, it can result in a sort of like certain periodization or a certain interpretation of the function of the social world. That's a lot of what Foucault was talking about in the order of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this like, I think there are tensions in Foucault and Marx's way of understanding history, especially. But I think what, I think where the continuities are and where thus the conversation is, is the, at the very least, an attempt to render history in some totalizing way. Um, uh, I, I, I think, I, I think rather than the sort of linguistic turn that came out of Foucault, and sort of moved more into analytic territory when it comes to history, trying to sort of write history, thinking of the writing of history as this sort of like almost a language game, and this exercise that you can sort of like really dig into sort of the um, the meta historical stuff of it all, which is really referencing a book called Meta History mm. by the writer Hayden White. Um, and that's re- this this is the real that's the re- that's where things really get like because Foucault cared a lot about historical contingency, and I think those are important questions to ask, and was interested in rendering those as sort of experience. There's there's phenomenology woven into sort of like the early work of Foucault, right? But then, you know, his focus on sort of rendering power as this structural entity, but that then in turn, individual agents sort of re-manifest, interpret, and reinforced via those systems has a lot in common with the idea that despite the assertions of a structure, of a larger structure, or a recognition of those The sort of magnificence of those assertions can can stir within individuals the sense of plasticity of them, the lack of permanence in the things around us, and our ability to, should we choose to not just interpret it, but try and change the world, our ability to kind of construct meaning in some sense of you know that whether whether we're seeking to inflate the 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 magnificent individual self, the the becoming of the self as separated from a larger scheme, think Bataille and Hegel maybe mm-hmm. or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Just spitballing. This versus the sort of the scheme of self that affirms itself in absence I think I think what they're trying to ask are like, how can human subjects be greater than human subjects? Foucault was like, we're done with the subject, man. I'm sick of the subject thing. But like, not even. I mean, he like he loved the subject thing, but then what I mean, I guess, is that it results in the sort of like post-subject of Deleuze and Guattari, and these like new ways of thinking of things as non-linear. And my favorite Marxist, Walter Benjamin, mm-hmm. has a tendency to disrupt the same sort of linear thinking in the, in the, as I talked about earlier, the crumbling up of my discipline into this more weird, interesting, totalizing shape that I don't really understand, maybe necessarily perfectly, but if, as I gain perspective by the close examination of history as this big object, as this big thing, I can get further and further closer to something more transcendent rather than navel-gazy and (laughs) affirming in its tiny, tiny status, you know.
0: Well, Kyle, I know um, we're getting close to the time you got to go. I want to thank you again for sitting down with us and talking about historiography and a whole array of other stuff that comes along with this conversation. Um, can you tell us uh, where we can find you online and uh, where we can find your podcast?
1: Yeah, I. Uh, um, you can find me at Labor Kyle on everything. Twitter mostly, and YouTube. Uh, and... Uh, um, yeah, I have some essays posted up there that are you know related directly to the stuff that we've been talking about, and then yeah, I'm also the co-host of a podcast that is uh, all it, j- literally just as serious as all of that other stuff is called. It's <laughs> called All Gamers Are Bastards, and it's about video games. You can follow that at AGAP Pod on Twitter and SoundCloud
0: where we post our stuff, and uh, yeah, uh, I was just happy to be here. I had fun. Cool, I did too um all right well kyle thanks so much for hanging out and uh thanks for um i'm just probably end this there and do a monologue thing so i'm gonna stop recording there all right well thanks so much for listening to this episode of no easy answers as always thank you for your support thanks for the reviews thanks for the kind words and uh you know just as a heads up man we got a couple more things uh planned uh for this month uh we have an interview forthcoming with daniel tutt from the podcast jouissance vampires and we also have an interview with cooper Caraway, the president of uh south dakota labor federation um or the labor federation of south dakota um anyway so yeah like cool stuff coming up and uh we will be releasing the video of those aspects on our patreon if you are not a subscriber please consider donating to the pod in return you get some cool bonus content and uh you get some video interviews and you also get some of these episodes Uh, ahead of time from when they're released on the public feed. All right, so I hope wherever you are, I hope you're safe, hope you're warm, hope you're happy, and I hope you are finding out of life any sort of meaning that you are looking for. Uh, you know, I've started to think more existentially lately, and I feel like, uh, you know, every, all of meaning derives from the social sphere, and so I hope that your social sphere is full of confidants and comrades and loved ones uh, that um, make your life meaningful and fulfilled and uh, i'm rambling so i'm gonna let you go um as always take care all my guys gals and non-binary pals see ya